Hello and welcome to The Bunker, a podcast for honors history students at Boston Spa High School. Let's get started. Five, four, three, two, one, Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Forces, you are about to embark upon the Great Crusade, toward which the we House have driven in many months. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg will die in the electric chair at Sing Sing Prison tonight. I shall resign the presidency effective at Presently noon tomorrow. At the age of 42, I'm John Meyer. We create and sustain a society in which all of us are equal. Taking a chance and expanding man's horizon. The future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. Have main engine start. Four, three, two, one, and liftoff. Liftoff of the 25th Space Shuttle mission, and it has cleared the tower. Quick uh, procedural announcement before we get into the heading and subheading for today. Um, this podcast is built to be an audio version of the notes I give my students at Boston Spa High School. So my students have hard copy notes um, that are built around time periods associated with the AP course curriculum for U.S. history. And those time periods, for my sake, are broken into modules. Uh, and each of those modules, um, every day in class, we cover a couple headings or subheadings that are designed to be kind of the lead into the conversation for the day, okay? So moving forward, I'll put copies of both my student notes, that the copies they have. I'll also give you a PDF copy of the notes I'm using to kind of supplement that material uh, on this podcast. Heading and subheading for uh, episode number three, a call to arms, mobilizing America for World War I. The colossal mobilization effort required to fight a war across two oceans and three continents led America to build, equip, and transport soldiers abroad to defend a foreign soil. Okay, so my quick comments on the subheading language here moving forward. The colossal mobilization, uh, I want you to really think about the effort and energy it's going to take to build an army. Our army is ranked 13th or 14th, depending on what list you look at in the world in terms of strength and size. Uh, we're at about around 125,000 soldiers, about 98,000 of those in the Army. Uh, 45 of those 98,000 are somewhere overseas. Uh, and there's another 27,000 that are part of National Guard regiments. All right, so this is going to be a colossal effort trying to mobilize and build up our Army. And then once we have them built, we have to ship them across the ocean. So logistically, that's going to be a colossal effort. And then, in addition to the, the military side of this conversation, we also have to mobilize the American public. I have that quote in your note sheet. It's not the army we must get in shape for the war. It is the nation. Just as a point of reference, we're ranked 13th or 14th, as I said, in army size. Here are the top five armies on the planet when the war started in 1914. All right. Number one is Russia, with almost six million soldiers. Okay, they'll be on the side of the Allies, the good guys, if you're keeping score at home. Number two, Germany has 4.5 million soldiers. They'll be fighting with the Central Powers. France has a little over four million. They're on the side of the Allies as well. Number four, Austria-Hungary, three million. They're on the side of the Central Powers. And number five, rounding out the top five, Italy has 1.25 million soldiers in their army. So three of the five in the top five will be on the central power side of this equation. So that's something that you're going to want to think about 
How does that play into our story as we begin to mobilize? Okay, here's five things that you should be able to draw from the notes, uh, the readings, uh, and this summary podcast uh, for the mobilization theme. Uh, Number one, the Selective Service Act. You should know the context of the act and the particulars associated with it in terms of numbers. Um, You should also be able to connect that to our first draft in American history. What was the context of the very first draft and what were the consequences of that draft? There's that synthesis point. You should be able to tell me about the mobilization of African Americans, women, and Native Americans. You should be able to tell me how we financed the war. Uh, these, these, the war effort is going to cost us $33 billion. Where did we come up with that money? You should also be able to identify in context who George Creel, Herbert Hoover, and Bernard Baruch are. Okay, let's go. Before I get into the mobilization notes for today, I'm just going to try an audio version uh, of the video I posted on the website, uh, which kind of reviews the reasons why we were drawn into the war and, and sets up uh, Wilson's war declaration. Here we go. The Great War began in Europe. At first, the Central Powers, Germany, Austria, and Turkey, fought the Allies, England, France, and Russia. It was a struggle for power and land and money. No one believed it would last long, especially in the United States, where President Woodrow Wilson insisted the country not take sides. He remembered the Civil War from his own childhood. He knew how awful the effects of war could be. The United States must be neutral, in fact, as well as in name. There is such a thing as a man being too proud to fight. But World War I was worse than anyone could have imagined. Armies of men dug themselves into trenches and slew men in other trenches. And new inventions, like the Wright Brothers' airplanes, which were intended to do good, became instruments of death. At first, airplanes were used to scout enemy territory. Flyers leaned out of cockpits and shot their weapons at enemy pilots. Then a new invention allowed pilots to synchronize machine gun fire with propeller blades. Soon, bombs were brought aboard and dropped by hand over the plane's side. But perhaps the most deadly weapon of all were German submarines. And on May 8, 1915, Americans were the target. New York Times. The Cunard liner Lusitania sailed out of New York last Saturday with 1,918 souls aboard. She was sunk by a German submarine, which sent two torpedoes crashing into her side. As pressure to enter the war mounted, President Wilson refused. Until early in 1917, when Germany sank eight more U.S. ships. On the night of March 31st, Woodrow Wilson got out of bed and took his portable typewriter to the south veranda of the White House. In the quiet of early morning, the president typed out a message that was to become famous. The present German submarine warfare against commerce is a warfare against mankind. It is a war against all nations. We are accepting the challenge. The world must be made safe for democracy. It was a presidential call for a declaration of war. 
and it made it clear that this was to be a war on behalf of freedom. On April 2nd, President Wilson spoke to Congress. It is a fearful thing to lead this great peaceful people into war, into the most terrible and disastrous of all wars. But the right is more precious than peace, and we shall fight for things which we have always carried nearest our hearts for democracy. Wilson received the greatest ovation of his life. The congressman cheered and cheered. The president went back to his office. He looked at his aide. Isn't it strange that men should cheer for war, he said. Then he put his head on his desk and wept. Okay, the first part of the mobilization story is going to be the Selective Service Act, or the draft, okay? If we're ranking 13th or 14th in the world in the size of our army, with just over 100,000, how do we mobilize and build the army uh, to prepare for the threat across the pond? All right, just a quick reset to the very first draft in American history. I'll give you the quick context. Uh, it is in April of 1861, uh, so it's the very beginning of the American Civil War. Um, President Lincoln calls for 75,000 volunteers for a war they think is going to last for 90 days. They actually had to turn volunteers away. Okay. If you want to message me the answer to this, what was the first battle that kind of woke the North up to the realities that this was not going to be a 90-day war? All right. Message that to me. Uh, the act, the first draft, called for registration of all males between 20 and 45, including any aliens with the intention of becoming citizens. There were exemptions for our first draft. Uh, you could buy your way out of the draft for $300. Message me this info. How much would $300 be worth today? Or you can message me some notable $300 men that bought their way out of the Civil War draft. Just to revisit that uh, conversation about the Civil War draft, I want to read a, a quick um, post that I had on the page uh, from the Boston Journal. Uh, in 1863, um, and here is what I had posted on the page in relation to the Civil War draft. Here you go. Um, Slavery has drawn its glittering steel and bathed it in fraternal blood. The blood will cry out for retribution. That blood will blot out party distinctions sufficiently, as least at the North, to unite us in a common bond. The loss of Sumter is our greatest gain. As the war dragged on and as volunteers were being replaced by conscripts and the casualties mounted, the black Republicans like Gross became focused on anti-war sentiment. The sentiments reached a high point in the summer of 1863. During that summer, just after the Battle of Gettysburg, the newspaper filled with lists of casualties. New York City was convulsed by draft riots, the most serious instance of civil discord in the history of the United States. Most notable draft riots were in New York City from uh, July 13th, about the 16th, 1863, mostly in lower Manhattan. Uh, included about 2,000 injured and almost uh, a little over 120 that were killed. All right, so this is pushback, and a good chunk of that pushback comes from uh, the lower socioeconomic status uh, that's being drafted. So these conscripts are going to be new immigrants from Ireland uh, and people that can't pay their way out with that $300 um, buyout. Okay, so draft riots. So you have the contextual cause of the draft, the first ever in history, which was the growing casualty count in the Civil War, and you have the consequences of that draft, most notably draft riot. All right, from uh, 1861 to 1917, 
Uh, here we have the Selective Service Act of 1917. Contextually, what we did not see, uh, if we were to compare this to the Civil War, when Lincoln made that call for 75,000 militia volunteers, um, that was met um, with some enthusiasm. He had to turn people away. It's not the same case in World War I. Okay, when war is declared in April of 17, only about 73,000 young men signed up to fight. Okay, the vast majority of the men um, that would eventually uh, sign up and be registered and then serve, um, if they weren't quick to volunteer, they weren't unwilling to serve. So that's something to keep in mind. Over 70% of the American army is going to be built from draftees or conscripts. 70%. So once the draft gets mobilized and we start drafting from that pool of 10 million, 70% of our armed forces will be draftees. Compare that to the Civil War. The Civil War, only 8% of the Union troops were draftees, and most of them could hire a substitute. Actually, that's a misstatement. Not most of them. Very few who had $300 in their pocket could do it. So there's the context of the second draft in American history. Yeah, the next area of mobilization deals with financing the war. How are we going to pay for this thing? So a quick summary that I posted on the website. Uh, we have the worker fight you know, motto. We have public borrowing through war bonds. We also have one-third raised through taxes. All right, so uh, let's break down two of those. First, we'll talk about the war bonds. Um, basically, we, we looked at bonds before. We were looking at the uh, American Revolution. Um, basically, you're investing in this war effort, and at the end of the war, interest accrued on those bonds could be paid back to you. So it's a similar thing here. We have liberty bond drives in World War I, and they're going to persuade tens of millions of Americans to buy government bonds. And what they're banking on is the idea that owning war bonds will give Americans' household a financial stake in the war effort and also increase support for the war effort. Uh, these elaborate bond drives were intended to prod the average American to furnish some financial support for the war effort. Okay. Bonds were in denomination as low as $50, so if you were, had limited means, you could purchase an installment plans. So a $50 Liberty Bond could be purchased by a payment of $4 up front, and then 23 weekly payments of $2. Okay. Nearly 23 million people, more than 20% of the American population, ended up buying war bonds. On the next avenue for funding and paying for the war is going to be taxes. So under the War Revenue Act of October 1917, a taxpayer with an income of about 40000 was subject to a 16% tax rate, and citizens with incomes of 1.2 or $1.5 million faced a tax rate of 67%. All right, before you go losing your hat over those numbers, you probably want to convert. What would 40000 in 1917 be worth today? Message me that answer. And what would $1.5 million in 1917 be worth today? Message me that one. Do it separately. Hopefully separate individuals do it. Only 5% of the U.S. population was required to pay taxes. U.S. tax revenue increased from $809 million in 1917 to a whopping $3.6 billion the following year. By the time World War I ended, the income tax revenue had funded a fully one-third of the cost of the war effort. Now, the other thing to think about now is, is the legality of taxes. So we're going to look at real quick when we actually put the income tax amendment into the Constitution. Can you message me that answer? When did we actually amend the Constitution to include an income tax? 
Okay, first, uh, our next focus rather, is going to be George Creel and the Committee of Public Information, uh, one of the most effective agencies developed during the war years. Uh, it's basically a vast enterprise in salesmanship. So Creel is a former muckraking journalist and a very vocal supporter of uh, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, the Creel Committee, or the CPI, as it was commonly known, was a gargantuan advertising agency. They sold the war to the American people. All right. The staff had grown from one to 100,000 in three months, so they were busy. Uh, it's jingles, it's posters, it's speeches. They are out there selling. And this is something you're going to want to pay attention to uh, because once we get into the 1920s, um, advertising is going to take a, a different path. We're going to start selling you goods that you didn't, need, you didn't know you needed. So let's make a jingle. Let's make every armpit a charm pit and sell you this new thing called deodorant. Anyway, I'm getting too far ahead of myself. Uh, CPI would organize volunteer speakers to give four-minute speeches, and the topic of the speech was scripted out for them. So the appearance of spontaneity, like someone just standing up on a soapbox in the middle of a community, was masked by a carefully scripted government message. Uh, they were not haphazard talks by nondescripts. It was really careful, rehearsed efforts delivered by the best and most notable people in your community. All right? So there's a message here. This is a controlled, propagandized effort to get the message out there and support the war. And one of the bigger messages is going to be around buying Liberty Bonds to get your financial support. So I spoke about the bond, uh, Liberty Bonds earlier. This is going to be the agency, the advertising agency arm to get out there and send the message and help sell. They have bond drives, essentially. One of the things that the CPI did that was unique, and this is going to be tapped into in the 1920s as well, is, is using that emerging celebrity culture. So the CPI had movie stars out there pitching information about Liberty Bonds. So movie stars in the 20s, film is just in its nascent days. You're going to see Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks. They're all out there selling bonds. They're trying to do bond drives to raise money for the war effort. Okay, Think about what you guys would do. Who would be the, uh, the movie star out there? that you would go to see and we'd buy a bond from. Is that a Hollywood handsome Brad Pitt? Well, you Seth Rogen fans, would you get off the couch and go to a fund drive, a bond drive to go raise money for the war efforts? Tell me, would you? All right, by the numbers, according to Creel, 75,000 volunteered for service as four Minutemen. They gave over 7 million speeches in more than 5,000 communities. All right, so there's some good numbers for you. All right, next up is Bernard Baruch and the War Industries Board. So quick summary of the notes I posted on the page. Uh, it was designed to encourage mass production and efficiency by eliminating waste and encouraging sharing. Uh, and this increased uh, production by 20%. So remember the quote at the beginning uh, of this podcast where I said President Wilson declared it's not the army that we must get in shape to train for war, it is the nation. So all the committees and agencies that are established to advise and oversee production and the movement of materials, raw and finished, the most important is going to be the War Industries Board. So they ran the economy essentially during the uh, war years. So we did have a bit of taste of government intervention in the economy, so think back to the progressive era. So we went from this laissez-faire, unbridled capitalism in the later 1890s, and then the government reaction to that was government controls, guidelines, commissions to oversee and monitor activity in the economy. So that kind of softened up our palette for the War Industries Board. And if you want to continue that conversation, take that next thread from the War Industries Board into what we'll see in, in the 1930s with the New Deal, this massive, massive government interventions. This is the War Industries Board um, controlling the economy. Okay, so think about this if you want to compare two things. The Selective Service Act and the local draft boards, they mobilized the troops. 
the War Industries Board is going to mobilize the economy. Okay? They allocated supplies, uh, war-related materials got first priority. They fixed prices uh, to ensure that manufacturing had a means to pay wages high enough so that workers wouldn't go on strike. Uh, they ordered standardization of goods so resources would not be wasted. Um, coordinated purchases so goods were not, you know, they, enough was sent, the quantity was sent. Uh, and about one quarter of all American production that was made here in the United States, uh, produced in, in American industry, was sent over to Europe. All right, so that uh, is a quick summary of the War Industries Board led by Bernard Baruch. Our next stop for mobilization is going to be Herbert Hoover and the Food Administration. When I say Hoover, uh, most students recall his role as president during the Great Depression when the stock market crashed in 29. Very little of that was his fault. It kind of rolled into his lap, but we'll talk about that later. Um, he was known as the food czar. He promoted the idea of the gospel of clean plate and also promoted meatless, wheatless, and sweetless meals. Um, the idea was to ration food so the government could prioritize food for the war effort. So um, the whole idea of the advertising that we looked at with Committee of Public Information. You'll see elements of that in the Food Administration. So the gospel, the clean plate, becoming part of that conversation. Um, kids in elementary schools have the clean plate club. Think of about just your household alone. When you're sitting down for a meal, you're, you're all finished, uh, and you, you know, pick up the dishes. How much food is left on those plates? So if you're promoting the gospel, the clean plate, we are not wasting anything. Uh, food is scarce. So an act of Congress creates the Food Administration. Uh, it's to provide further um, national security and defense by encouraging production and conserving of the food supply, as well as its distribution. Uh, the Food Administration is the chief volunteer organization uh, that was brought into being to handle and assist in relief efforts for the Allied forces. As a matter of fact, uh, Herbert Hoover becomes known as the Food Czar, as I mentioned, because he leads uh, a food relief effort for Belgians, uh, Belgians, excuse me, during the war years. That's really where he made his name. He's a millionaire miner. Uh, at Stanford University, so he's got plenty of jingle. Uh, he will become Secretary of Commerce as well. He's got a great resume, but unfortunately, um, when the house comes crashing down in 29, mm -hmm. he's at the helm, so that's an unfair rap against him. Um, I do, uh, I have over the years actually posted a recipe for Liberty Bread, uh, and kids would make it, and we'd share it as a class, and I'd pass around a little nosh of Liberty Bread, but we can't do that this year, obviously, but I do have the recipe posted online, so if you did click on it and you want to make the recipe with your family at home, um, go ahead. Um, good luck. Uh, let, me, let me read the ingredients for you. Ready? Um, Liberty Bread's going to use no butter, no milk, or no sugar. Okay, so I lost half of you right there. So this is what you do. You take one cup of liquid, and that can be water drained off of uh, boiled potatoes. Um, it's liquid of, okay, it just can't be milk or buttermilk. One teaspoon of salt, one cup of rolled oats, one quarter cake of yeast, and two and a half cups of flour. Okay, so just to be clear, no butter, no milk, or sugar. You have salt, oats, yeast, and flour. <laughs> All right, so... A lot of people, when they make this, uh, they don't put enough yeast in it, so they come in with, instead of Liberty Bread, it looks like Liberty Bricks. Um, I did have, a um, couple years back, two students whose parents owned a pizza shop in town. They had some type of special flour. It was the best Liberty Bread I ever had. So the flour they had was top-notch, top-grade flour. So that changed the whole dynamic. And they also presented it much different. They actually tied it in knots, so it looked like a little... French braid almost. That's called going the extra mile, kids. Anyway, have fun. Uh, make your Liberty bread at home. 
um, share it with the family. It's, uh, it's, it's not going to be a fun experience. And don't cheat. You know, don't put buttermilk in it. Don't put raisins in it. Stick along with the recipe I have online. All right. You know, walk in their shoes. All right, now we're going to focus on African-Americans and their role in the mobilization efforts. Uh, from the notes I posted on the page, about 2 million African-Americans registered for the draft, uh, although Marines would not accept them and the Navy only enlisted them for uh, menial jobs, large numbers did serve in the Army. Uh, some 375,000 African-Americans served overall, uh, with 639 receiving commissions. All right, the case study for us is going to be the Harlem Hellfighters. Sorry about the language, but Harlem is where they're from. They represent the 59th New York National Guard Regiment as well as the 369th Infantry Regiment for the U.S. Army. They were not able to serve in the regular Army because of segregation, but because of unusual series of events, the regiment instead fought alongside the French in the trenches. So for 191 days in 1918, they served more than any other American unit during the war, and a total of 171 members of the Harlem Hellfighters were awarded the Legion of Merit. All right, great opportunity for a synthesis connection in this conversation about the Harlem Hellfighters. We can go back to the Civil War in class. I did focus on a segregated regiment from one particular state. If you uh, remember the name of that regiment or any particular information about them you want to share, uh, hit the messaging app uh, and send me a recorded answer. I appreciate that. Uh, and Maybe I'll even throw you some moment points for that. If you don't know how to use the messaging app uh, and are unfamiliar with this technology, welcome to the club, kid. Figure it out. All right, I want to focus on a little local connection here, and it is the story of Henry Johnson. If you've heard the name and it sounds somewhat familiar, it is the name of the boulevard that cuts right through Arbor Hill. Henry Johnson was an Albany native. He was born actually in uh, North Carolina. I believe, uh, but he moves to Albany as a kid, uh, working a bunch of odd jobs, chauffeur, soda mixer, laborer, uh, and working as a porter at the Albany Union Station. He does enlist uh, in the Army June 5th, 1917, and he's assigned to color uh, the Colored National Guard Unit known as um, the 15th New York, which eventually becomes the 369th. This is an interesting point to think about. This is the, really the beginning of our segregated Army. Um, it says basically, uh, as he fills out his registration card, there's a little direction here. And this is what it says. If person is of African descent, tear off this corner. So basically, uh, if you had seen an image of this, this corner would be like the lower left corner. You tear that off. That would let the people sifting through the demographic information know that you're African American. There's our segregated I want to experiment again here real quick, uh, continuing the Henry Johnson story. And I'm basically just going to take a video clip and convert it to audio to the best of my ability. I know the sound's not the best, uh, but we're going to work with what we have here. So here's a quick video on a contemporary connection to the Henry Johnson story. Today, America honors two of her sons who served in World War One, nearly a century ago. These two soldiers were roughly the same age, dropped into the battlefields of France at roughly the same time. They both risked their own lives to save the lives of others. They both left us decades ago before we could give them the full recognition that they deserved. But it's never too late to say thank you. 
Today, we present America's highest military decoration, the Medal of Honor, to Private Henry Johnson and Sergeant William Shemin. Henry was one of the first Americans to read France's highest award for valor. But his own nation didn't award him anything. Not even the Purple Heart, though he had been wounded 21 times. Nothing for his bravery, though he had saved a fellow soldier at great risk to himself. His injuries left him crippled. He couldn't find work. His marriage fell apart, and in his early 30s, he passed away. Now, America can't change what happened to Henry Johnson. We can't change what happened to too many soldiers like him who went uncelebrated because our nation judged them by the color of their skin and not the content of their character. But we can do our best to make it right. In 1996, President Clinton awarded Henry Johnson a Purple Heart. And today, 97 years after his extraordinary acts of courage and selflessness, I'm proud to award him the Medal of Honor. His daughter, Elsie, who's here today with what seems like a platoon of Shemins, um, was a has a theory about what drove her father to serve. He was the son of Russian immigrants, and he was devoted to his Jewish faith. His family lived through the pogroms, she says. They saw towns destroyed and children killed. And then they came to America, and here they found a haven, a home, success, and my father and his sister both went to college. All that in one generation. That's what America meant to him. And that's why he'd do anything for this country. Well, Elsie, as much as America meant to your father, he means even more to America. Takes our nation too long sometimes to say so. Because Sergeant Shemin served at a time when the contributions and heroism of Jewish Americans in uniform were too often overlooked. But William Shemin saved American lives. He represented our nation with honor. And so it is my privilege on behalf of the American people to make this right and finally award the Medal of Honor to Sergeant William Shemin. As you probably gathered, that clip was not just about uh, Albany's Henry Johnson, but also uh, William Shemin. Now, I did not know this story. Here's a quick uh, read off the Wikipedia page where all truth lies. Um, William Shemin was a sergeant in the United States Army during World War I. He was awarded the Medal of Honor for bravery in action at Vessel River near Basotius, France. Uh, born in Bayonne, New Jersey, 1896, died in New York, New York, 1973. Fun fact for you here is education, SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. And he also went to SUNY ESF Ranger School. Look at that, you learn something every day. Next area of focus is gonna be uh, Native Americans and mobilization, and this one may surprise you. Um, when I say the word code talkers in reference to war service and Native Americans, most people default to the Navajo code talkers in World War II. The actual first code talkers in U.S. military history were from the Choctaw tribe. This is an Indian tribe from Oklahoma, and they kind of joined in the waning years of the war. So the, basically towards the tail end of the war, what was happening is the American Army's phone lines had been tapped by the Germans, so they were able to learn the location of Allied force movements and supply stations. 
So when the Choctaw Indians were put on the phones and they spoke in their native speech, the Germans couldn't effectively spy on these transmissions anymore. Uh, some irony here, um, we've just looked at African-Americans, a marginalized uh, member of the American family. Now we're looking at Native Americans, another marginalized member of the American family uh, who served valiantly. They do not receive nationwide citizenship uh, in the United States until the year, wait for it, wait for it, you tell me. Why don't you message me using that message gap? Can you tell me what year Native Americans were finally granted citizenship here in the United States. All right, message that to me. Now, the Choctaws, uh, many volunteered uh, valiantly. They were patriotic, and that's going to be a theme you're going to follow through every single conflict. Usually, it's the look over the left out and the marginalized that rise up and serve and defend the very country that gives them an opportunity, hopefully, to rise up. All right, so that's the Native Americans during World War I. All right, our last element of mobilization is going to focus on women. So uh, on the website, I put a quick summary where women have worked as volunteers. They encouraged the sale of, of war bonds, planted victory gardens, and found themselves in unfamiliar roles in jobs once held by men. Uh, at the time of the First World War, they were barred from voting or serving in military combat roles. Um, in an earlier podcast, I asked you to send me uh, an audio answer to the question, how many states actually had granted women the right to vote at the start of World War I? In 1914, how many states had granted the women uh, the right to vote all right so if you haven't done that yet don't know the answer look it up send it my way so um they took a uh, roles that a male once had okay working in factories uh the other advantage here you see african-american women they're able to shift from their domestic servant type housework into uh, offices and factories uh, the american red cross is operating hospitals they're going to be staffed by nurses um, so by June 1918, there's going to be 3,000 American nurses and over 750 British-run hospitals in France. Now, another element to explore with women is going to be their protest angle. So Alice Paul, who we met during the Progressive Era, is uh, the leader of the National Women's Party, and that particular group uh, is petitioning um, to get a national amendment to give women the right to vote. Right? So instead of stopping protesting, while the war is going on, Alice Paul and her group continues through the war. Now, in England, uh, the suffragettes had stopped their protests. They're also looking for recognition. They want the right to vote in England. But consider the, the differences between the two. England, there's more of an existential threat you know, happening over there. We're 3,000 miles away. There's going to be no domestic attacks, notable, notable domestic attacks uh, on the home front during the war years. So what she does is she organizes a group called the Silent Sentinels. They become the first group in American history to actively picket and protest in front of the White House. Now it's, it's quite common, but back then it had never been done before. So they start in January of 1917. So I want you to think about the coldest, dreariest, miserable January day. Those women are out there putting... Wilson's words right back in his mouth. If he's going to make the world safe for democracy, what about democracy for the 20 million women that are not allowed to vote in national elections? So they will maintain a presence out there um, for six months. It starts to embarrass Wilson. It's a constant reminder to him uh, that women do not have the right to vote. And this is something else to consider just moving forward. Think about this. One of the reasons why the civil rights movement will kind of peak in the early 50s, okay, we'll see a Supreme Court case um, called Brown versus the Board of Education. We'll have the success of the 
um, Montgomery bus boycott, really focusing our attention uh, on African-American issues. One of the reasons why we see government response and reaction in legislative means in court rulings is because it's embarrassing. You know, because we're fighting the communists on the world stage. You know, we're calling them evil. Yet, we won't let white kids and black kids go to school together. So we try to scrub our image you know, on the global stage by addressing civil rights. And Wilson's doing that to a degree as well. He's going to become quite aware that these women are not going away. Alice Paul herself gets arrested in uh, October of 17 and gets a sentence of seven months in a work camp. Right? And she's, she's not going away. She's tough. Um, they are successful <laughs> despite, you know, the collusion between uh, Wilson and the, the local police. The women get arrested for obstructing traffic. Uh, so these militants, if you want to use flying quotes to describe these women as militants, simply were exercising their free speech, and they were arrested and busted up. And when they grabbed uh, these young ladies off the protest line, another group would just take their place. Uh, they are successful. We will eventually get the 19th Amendment um, to the Constitution in 1920. Uh, more on that story later. But the war had a great deal to do with that. All right, so the video clip has Alice Paul uh, online. If you want to watch that again, go revisit it, do a quick search about Alice Paul. Uh, that wraps up women during the war years. Um, quick final thoughts for you as we start to play and experiment with this technology. I encourage you guys to mess around with the messaging. I'd love to do a Q&A uh, at the end of these. Um, so if for some reason something was confusing to you, either in the readings on the note sheets or something I said in the podcast, just message me. I can actually incorporate that audio uh, and re-publish uh, uh, the podcast with those questions in there, uh, your recorded voice as well as my recorded response. So I encourage you to take uh, advantage of that. Uh, and if for some reason not a lot of people do it, which I can't imagine why, it seems wicked cool, uh, maybe I'll, I'll have that as one of your assignments moving forward. All right, peace. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Roger that. Initiating shutdown sequence.